This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. In today's program, we're going to take a, I think, necessary detour out of the world of COVID and election chicanery to talk about the sad fact that America has lost one of its legendary figures this past week with the passing of General Charles Yeager. And yes, apologies for my voice. I'm suffering from allergies quite, quite terribly at the moment. But it was my great fortune a decade ago, and Mr. McMillan's as well, to have been able to spend some quality time with a live microphone in the presence of Chuck Yeager, who told us some very engaging stories. Back in April of 2010, we, we aired the first part, focusing mainly upon his experiences getting shot down over Europe during World War II. And a few months later, tacked on a second part where he talked about his later career. Now, if by chance the name isn't ringing a bell, we would remind you that Chuck Yeager was the guy, the first American, the first human being to fly an aircraft faster than the speed of sound. He did it in 1947 in a rocket-propelled aircraft. If you've been to the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., and, and we hope you have, you will see his Bell X-1 orange aircraft hanging from the ceiling. When he first accomplished that feat back in, the, back in 47, it was sort of a state secret. For whatever reason, the Air Force didn't want people to know that we had actually broken the so-called sound barrier. But word eventually got out, and uh, Jaeger became a known quantity. A decade later, in fact, he was running the astronaut training program that was then taking place down in Edwards Air Force Base in Southern California. How it was that Chuck Jaeger, considered America's greatest pilot, did not get chosen for the astronaut corps was made the subject of Tom Wolfe's legendary book, The Right Stuff. A great book. A great book, one of possibly Wolf's best, and, and a pretty good movie as well. I crossed paths with this legendary figure a decade back uh, uh, in circumstances where I was acting in my capacity as a physician. We have laws that prevent me from saying too much about that, but I think I can get away with saying that the general wind up coming to a clinic I was working in with a very simple and mundane minor medical problem. I concluded that he had a variation of, of, of a certain common medical problem that, for which there were, there were not a lot of good medicines out there. Now, to put this in perspective, I've thought for years about this particular medical problem, and maybe it shouldn't have taken the man that broke the sound barrier to galvanize me into action, but that, that's just the way it evolved. Sorry. And as it would turn out, my numerous conversations with a compounding pharmacy came up with a um, particular treatment that proved quite satisfactory, which I dare say got me in the general's good books. I have in the next room uh, a signed photograph of Chuck Yeager saying, Doug, fly safe. I had admitted to him that I too had a pilot's license, although uh, I always had doubts about how good a pilot I would be since I was always a little bit prone to motion sickness. I told the general's wife I feared I had the wrong stuff. By the way, it turned out that wasn't really a problem in flying, although I've never taken up aerobatics. Let's leave it at that. Anyway, in the wake of this, I, I asked the general to appear on this program, and he agreed. Mr. Millen and I drove up to the Grass Valley Airport one spring day, 
And he very generously gave us over an hour of his time and provided us with the material you're about to hear. I do want to thank Mr. Millen for the excellent recording job he did that day up in Grass Valley. I've been listening to these recordings as I did earlier today. I was impressed with uh, the general's warmth and his just overpowering personality, which I think uh, just comes through. So for today's program, what we're going to do is air that first part. And in our second segment today, well, not surprisingly, we'll do part two. We start out with his World War II experiences in Europe. It's my great privilege to be here at Grass Valley's Municipal Airport with someone we have always hoped we might one day sit down and have a chance to chat with. It's a true honor to be able to say, welcome to Radio Parallax, General Charles Yeager. Thank you very much, Doug. General, you have numerous accomplishments to your credit. Many of those from later in your career are pretty well known. But I'd like to talk to you today about your World War II experiences. You were trained as a fighter pilot in the Army Air Corps and sent to England. Can we talk about what you young pilots were tasked with in the air war? Our mission was escorting B-17s and B-24s on long-range missions. And in 1943, before the P-51 came into the picture, the bombers were stuck with P-47s and P-38s, which only had about four hours of endurance. So consequently, the 38 and the 47 could stay with the bombers for two hours and had to turn around and fly back to England, and that's when the German fighters hit the bombers. And when the Mustang came into the picture, we came over there in November of 43, the P-51 had eight hours of endurance, which meant that we could stay with the bombers all the way to the target and then take them back to England. It was a big breakthrough for, for escorting bombers and protecting them and uh, also didn't have pressurization, but basically we pressure-breathed oxygen at 35, 36,000 feet. And we had G-suits, and we had lead computing gun sights, things that the German fighter pilots never had in World War II. And actually, that's when even the best of the, of the Luftwaffe, say, when the Mustang showed up over Berlin, they knew they'd lost the war. I understand you took part in the first daylight bombing raid on the city of Berlin. Can you tell us about that? When we got over there and started escorting the bombers, on March the 4th, 1944, we ended up on the first daylight raid on Berlin. Until that time, the bombers had not hit Berlin. It was a highly protected area. Our mission on that particular day was to escort a, a a force of B-17s, and what happened, the weather was so bad that they had a recall on the mission. Now, there was one box of 36 B-17s never got the recall, so they pressed on. And the weather was so bad that we ended up uh, only two P-51s were together. Where the other guys were, we, we don't know. They, you know, were fooling around in, in very bad weather. And uh, consequently, we found our the only box of bombers that were going to Berlin, we stayed with them. And then uh, over Berlin, when they bombed it and it turned headed back out, the Germans were not flying because the weather was so bad. And one ME-109 had, had gotten up into the where the bombers were, were out to the right about 10 miles from the stream from the box of bombers. 
and uh, I spotted him. We were flying a, around 27,000 feet. I spotted him, and it's the first German I ever saw. And I went down, opened up the P-51, picked up speed, and uh, was coming down so fast, I overestimated the speed of the 109. It's the first one I'd ever seen. I had everything wide open. I was going so damn fast. I was, man, it, I was closing up really quick. So I had to chop the power back, pull the airplane up and go across him, and then come back in under him at his speed, and then open up, and he blew up. And that's the first airplane I shot out. And I saw, that's the only German I saw, except about five minutes later I saw a Heinkel 111K down around 15,000 feet and went down. Well, he got in the clouds and we lost him. And the two of us came all the way back by ourselves because that, that's just the way, the, the way it was. You had no navigation system, and when you, when you headed home, you headed west. Obviously, that's... That's where England was. And then you crossed, you flew until you thought you were over the English Channel. You let down until you saw water, and then you flew till you hit the coast of England. It really didn't make any difference whether you found your base or not. There were air bases every 10 miles, bomber bases, fighter bases, British bases. So if, even if you couldn't find your base because of weather, you, you landed at any base. And your mission the next day began a remarkable series of events. What happened? We took off. I took off a spare. Now, what you do, you take each squadron has 16 airplanes. And then two spares take off that have flight integrity. If nobody aborts, you go back to your base. You don't have to go on a mission. And on this particular mission, we had trouble getting the uh, airplane into high blower, and a guy aborted and headed back, so I filled in as the number four guy on green flight, the fourth flight back of flight of four, and was riding all the way in this position until we got down south of Bordeaux, where there was the Falco 190 base, and the bombers were going to hit the base. When I noticed the 190, first 190s, there were three of them behind us and above us, and I called it in the flight leader, the bandits and uh, told him to break. We all broke, and I put me in the lead, and I hit, made a head-on pass with the 190s, and and I got hit with 20 millimeters. It took the prop off part of the left wing, and obviously you you can't stay with the airplane because it's burning. So you jettison the canopy, undo your lap belt, and fall out of the airplane, and uh, then you free fall because you don't want to open your parachute at, because it had been rumored. But it never happened. Pilots did not shoot pilots in their parachute. It, regardless of what somebody tells you of these rumors, they did not shoot pilots in parachutes. I just free fell from about 18,000 feet until the ground starts rushing at you and then you open your parachute. I, I was probably about 1,000 feet above the ground and floated down and swung by pine sapling, grabbed the top or spring down, and stepped on the ground. And uh, then I could hear German trucks, and when I was coming down, I could see them moving on the ground. I finally hit the ground, gathered up my parachute, and then headed off into the woods to get away from the area where I landed. So with Germans all around, what did you do to avoid capture? We had been trained, and 
escape and evasion. Like in England, they'd take us out and drop us in the countryside, say, okay, get back to your base. And then the, the British would try to catch you. It was good training for us. And I moved off probably four or five miles from where I'd hit the ground and then holed up in the brush and stayed there overnight. I had a few wounds in me, but we carried in our survival kit sulfur drugs. Sulfur drug was an antibiotic. I had a hole in my right leg and one up farther, a lot of 20 millimeter flack on my fingers and or hands and feet. And I just sprinkled the, the sulfur powder on where I'd been, was bleeding, and it kept it from infecting. The next day, I heard a guy chopping wood went over. We'd been told, don't ever talk to anybody or approach anybody that doesn't look poor. The woodcutter was cutting wood, and I went up, he was a little bit scared because I had a 45 and, and was in a flying suit and, and, a, and a jacket, and he couldn't speak English, and I couldn't speak French. He knew I was an American pilot because he could see it. He gave me some cheese and sausage and motioned for me to stay where I was, the area. And then he took off. And I moved away about three or 400 yards and hid again. And then he came back with another guy, a doctor spoke English. And he was asked me what I intended doing. Well, I was in occupied France, and there were three neutral countries, Sweden, Switzerland, and Spain. Now, the Geneva Convention, if you could get into a neutral country as a warring nation, then you were interned in that country and kept there until the end of the war. And uh, that's that's what the rules. I told the doctor I, I wanted to get into Spain because I knew where I was. I had silk maps of where we flew over. He said, well, it's difficult to move because the Germans are everywhere. And he said, I'll put you in contact with the Maquis, the French resistance fighters, and they'll, they'll take care of you. And he took me to this house. Actually, the guy that owned the house was the mayor of Narok. And his name is Gabriel. He spoke a little bit of English, but not too much. But this doctor who spoke fluent English came back. And then they t- took me to a, a Russian lady. It was really funny. She had been a white Russian. And when during the uprising in Russia, with, she moved into France. She was quite wealthy. And then the war started. She lived in Paris. So she moved to southern France, to Narok and uh, bought a house, castle, you might say. And uh, they took me to her, and she, she, she spoke such perfect English. She, she interrogated me. And one of, the, one of the things that impressed me, she, she asked me, how old are you? I said, 20. And he, well, he said, the Americans running out of men already? And I said, well, most fighter pilots are young. She's a cagey old gal, and I had my high school ring on my right hand, on my finger. And she said, are you married? And I said, no. She said, aha. He said, you're lying. I said, no, I'm not. Said, well, why do you wear a ring? I said, that's my high school ring. And I took it off, had my name inside. And I said, in America, if I was married, I'd have a ring on my left hand. In your weddings, rings are worn on the right hand. And she really trying to catch me in a, in a lie out of a concern that German agents would try and infiltrate the resistance. And rightly so, because it was a very dangerous, a lot of those people got, got killed by the Germans. And 
And so she okayed me, and then they that's when they took me to the Mackey or the French Resistance Fighters. There were about 20 of them, and I was put in with the group. Very few people spoke English. We moved every every night. We never spent more than one night in a plane, and their job was to harass the German troops, blow up railroad trains, you know, and bridges, and things like this. And they received probably once every week a couple of canisters dropped out of Halifax's British bombers. They had some kind of communications I could never figure it out with, that they had with the British, and they'd, a bomber would come over at night over a certain field and drop a couple thousand-pound canisters that were full of guns, ammunition, counterfeit meat and bread, ration stamps, money, and all these things. And and they would, you know, use all this money and, and stuff like that to, and and food stamps to uh, replenish their, their food. And they, they try every night they moved, and they uh, would receive plastic explosives for blowing up railroad train, trains. Something it turns out you were familiar with from your youth back in West Virginia. My father used that yeah. same explosives and the same fuses, mm-hmm. so I was put in charge of cutting fuses for them and, and setting them when they told me how far they had to be away from where the explosion occurred. It was interesting. They had about 20 guys in a group, and they'd steal the cow and beans and cook it in a big pot and eat. And like I say, every night they moved. And how long were you with them? I stayed with them a little over a month. You know, the Germans just could not infiltrate the underground system because they were so damn many of them. They were smart guys. And finally, after about a month, I had my own silk maps. You know, we carried them in our flying suit pockets. And they traced out the route that we had to go through the Pyrenees Mountains, which are about like the high Sierras out here. And uh, we had to go through the Pyrenees Mountains to get into Spain. After about a month of fooling around with them, then they took me south with about four or five other American pilots and gunners and finally turned us loose. And we ended up in Paris. And they gave us a backpack with cheese and bread and we headed out, and it was it was April, May. Snow was about four feet deep in the Pyrenees because they're around nine thousand feet high. And it was it wasn't easy. It was it took took us about four days and nights to get through the Pyrenees, and we had to stay off the roads. And German patrols were right. I think on the fourth day that we were going through, we found this cabin up there. There's a lot of logging in the Pyrenees, and the way they got the logs from the top of the Pyrenees range of mountains down to the bottom to the rivers was that they built a trough and it had snow on it and they'd get these big logs into the trough and then they'd slide all the way down to the bottom of the hill and go into the river. We found this cabin and Pat, the guy who was a navigator on B-24s, it really made a mistake in that he hung his damn socks outside the cabin to dry. Well, the German patrol, about 200 yards up, were walking out and saw the socks hanging up, and they were just ruthless guys. So they started shooting through the building. There was a window in the back, and Pat went out first, and when he jumped out, he kind of stumbled, 
And I, I came out and hell, he'd been hit in the knee with the rifle bullet. His whole knee was gone. And the only thing holding his, the bottom part of his leg on was that big tenon on the in, inside of the, his leg. We were near this trough and I threw him in the trough and then jumped in after him and we slid down the hill, you know, about a mile and finally dumped into the river. And it, it was colder than hell and probably saved his life because he he didn't bleed very much. Yeah. I cut the tenon off and the bottom part of his leg fell off and then I put a tourniquet on it and used my shirt to cover up the stunt and tighten it real tight. And we were in snow and ice from the rest of the night and he didn't bleed to death. I took him over the hill. It yeah. took took all night. I got him on the road, and I heard later that they had repatriated him. The Spanish had released him because he only had one. It cut off his leg to where it was just barely a stump in the, in the hospital. And I never did. I talked to his wife because he died about six months after the war. I talked to his wife, that's all. And she said if she wouldn't even talk about it because too much pain. We're speaking with General Charles Yeager about his experiences in World War II. Well, General, you got out of occupied France into neutral Spain. What then happened? You're in a neutral country, and there were 1,600 American airmen interned in Spain. Everyone was helped through the Pyrenees by the French. And, and they were very dedicated people. A lot of them had lost their lives. I know I owe my neck to them, and as a lot of all these 1,600 guys that were turned in Spain owed their lives to them, too. And they were wonderful, wonderful people, and still are. And it's this stupid press we have, you know, bad mouth this, bad mouth that, and try to form your opinion of other countries. Probably the worst neutral country was Switzerland. That's, that's where Germans put gold. When we went to the Pyrenees and got down to this sort, S-O-R-T, a little small village in Spain, the American consulate had sent up, set up post in, along the border because, hell, they got 1,600 goddamn Americans. They're, they're pretty thick, so they, they, they can pick them out, take you down to Lerida, south of the border, about 60 miles, and then the American consulate would set you up in a hotel give you money for cl- and buy you clothes, and, and it was, you didn't have to fight or nobody shooting at you. And it was pretty nice, soft life. I guess there was some barter going on for getting you airmen back. Spain had no access to petroleum products, no oil, no wells, no gasoline. Well, and hell, the wars going on, they had no gasoline because Germans took everything in the area. And uh, Americans started running out of little touchy on fighter pilots. And they negotiated with the Spanish to trade them gasoline for the American pilots. They negotiated the deal with the Spanish. Then so many gallons per pilot. Then the Spanish took us in small groups, five or six at a time, down to Gibraltar. And the British flew into Gibraltar and had a base there. And they turned us over to the British at Gibraltar, and then the British flew us back to England. I stayed in Spain well over a month or a month and a half. So when you got back to England, how did you rejoin your squadron? When we came back, we weren't allowed to go back to our base. But here again, the Germans had been trying to infiltrate the system. 
by bringing in blonde-haired German right. and, and try to get into the intelligence system that the Americans had set up in London. And so we were interrogated. We, when they flew us back, they got there and treated us like prisoners until such time as they found out that we were who wow. we said we were. That's only normal and it's, sure. it's only right. I, I stayed about a week in this plush prison, what it was, in a hotel. So they had to send up to my base to get a guy to identify me. So they sent up to my base and got a guy named T.D. that I knew very well. He's a practical joker and things like this. And so he, he came down to London and they brought him in. And I, these damn intelligence colonels are all pretty tough old guys and you, you couldn't get away with nothing. And they brought him in and said, you know Jaeger? And he looked at him and said, never saw him before in my life. And, and, and they got that colonel, I thought they were going to shoot him. <laughs> and he walked out, and you hear him out giggling outside the door, and they didn't, they didn't take kindly to that. He, he was a practical joker. And finally, they called him back in. He said, yeah, it's Jaeger. <laughs> Well, General, I understand the rules were firm that evadees were not to go back to combat duty. Rightly so, and many guys, some guys had escaped out of the Netherlands and France, and, and that was the rule. And the reason was that if you were shot down again and captured by the Germans and in, interrogated, you'd compromise the underground system and it'd be a lot of innocent people killed. And that, that was the reason. Well, I only had, what, you know, nine missions, shot down one airplane, and I, I didn't want to come on me and this other captain who was with me. I was only a flight officer. I wasn't even a, an officer. And see, I'd gone through flying school as, a, as an enlisted man, a corporal. And then when I got my wings, then they made me a flight officer, and I, that's lower than a second lieutenant. Well, I raised so much hell with these colonels, and finally, they sent me up to a one-star general, and he said, hey, you ruled, you ruled. And said, well, God damn it, I don't want to go home. And I tell you, we raised so much hell, it took a, about a week. Finally, General Idar, the Supreme Allied Commander, he's really a neat, neat guy, called us in just to meet us. He said, why don't you want to go home? I haven't done my job. He said, I've got people shooting themselves in the foot to go home, and I can't understand why you guys don't want to go home. He said, I just normally don't see guys like you, but he was real sympathetic. He said, I can't give you permission. He knew the damn invasion was coming in six days, and when the invasion came and all of the, the Maquis, or free Frenchmen, surfaced as an open army. And so no longer was the reason valid. You're cleared to fly combat. And fly combat he did, becoming an ace. I got to say, listening to this, I can't believe how fortunate we were to be able to have had that interview. We're going to take a short break at this point. Don't go away. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.